This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the chair in front of you, uh, there's a rack under the seat, and there's a Bible there. You can grab a Bible and turn to page 5. Five, five. That's where we're going to be today, page 555 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, we'll jump into our text this morning. God, thank you for your word, and we just posture ourselves this morning as those uh, who want to be hearers. Lord, we need to hear from you. Lord, we need, uh, we need your word to teach us, to strengthen us. Um, to correct us, to encourage us, to inform us. We just pray that you would speak to us from your holy word this morning. And we believe that you have something to say to to each of us today. And uh, we ask that in this text, you would just apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, most of all, I just pray that you would show us the glory of Christ and uh, the, the glory of his work in the cross and resurrection. So, Lord, we give you our, our lives as hearers, as those who want to be hearers and doers of your word. And we ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think of if uh, you think about a spiritual person? So if you heard someone say about a Christian now, I'm speaking about a Christian, that, that he is really spiritual, or she is such a spiritual person. What do you think when you hear that description of someone? Maybe if, you're, uh, maybe if your church background is um, charismatic, maybe you would have thoughts about spiritual gifts. Maybe you would first of all think, oh, a spiritual person, that's someone who has spiritual gifts, someone who, who hears from the Lord, that the Lord's always putting impressions on their heart, that they're always kind of saying, hey, the Lord told me this, or the, the Lord told me that, or they're, they're just sort of, um, you know, living in a world that's very, very spiritual. They're in tune to the things of the Spirit. Maybe you think of something like that. Maybe if your church background is different, it's not uh, of a charismatic background, but maybe your background is different and you think, well, when I think of spiritual, I think of the fruit of the Spirit. I think that the spiritual person is the person that has uh, the character of God, that the Holy Spirit is in them and shines through them. So the fruit of the Spirit, they're a loving person. They're a joyful person. Uh, the peace of God is around their life. So I see, the, I see the fruit of Spirit in their life, and that's what I think. Or maybe if you're from either one of those backgrounds and you think, well, I, I think of the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual person to me is the prayerful person, the person that waits on the Lord in prayer, the person that, that, re, that meditates, doesn't just read, but meditates on the Scripture, the person that's thinking about the truth of the Spirit, uh, truth of the Word of God by the Spirit. Maybe it's someone who's really radical. They fast and they do all kinds of spiritual things that are, wow, just uh, really demonstrate commitment to God. And so I see them as spiritual. So, so whether it's spiritual gifts or spiritual fruit and character, or maybe it's spiritual disciplines and communing with the Lord by the Spirit, Maybe it's one of those. So what is it that you would think? There are different views of what it means to be spiritual. And this is a hot issue in Corinth, the letter that Paul is writing to this church, because there are different views of spirituality. And he's going to address the spiritual person in just a moment in the passage we're about to read. And there are people who have differing views of maturity, differing views of wisdom, And the problem is that uh, they're evaluating one another based on who's spiritual, who's wise, who is mature. And it's created an environment that's very divisive, a church that's very separated by these kinds of views. Well, Paul's going to show us in the passage we're about to read here that, uh, that the central message of his preaching was Christ and him crucified, and that this gospel, that this is the real wisdom of God. And the spiritual person is the one who has the Holy Spirit 
and has revealed to him or her this truth of the gospel. He's going to connect the spiritual person to the gospel. It's the person that believes in what Christ has done and the person who lives in light of what Jesus has done in his death or resurrection. So we're going to finish chapter 2 today. Uh, We left off last week at 5, so we're going to read verses 6 through 16. And this is a fairly dense portion of Scripture And uh, I'm a fairly dense preacher, so it goes well together, uh, dense and dense. But uh, no, those are two different kinds of dense. But uh, it's it's kind of a dense portion. So as we read along, don't be intimidated by all the language that at parts can be a little hard to understand because I'm going to try to pull it up kind of at a 30,000 foot level and draw out a couple of the big ideas from the passage and apply it to us today. So verses 6 through 16, chapter 2, this is God's word to us this morning. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If the Corinthians are going to live together in unity, they're going to have to grasp what Paul is teaching them by the Lord in this passage. And that's that real wisdom is tied to the message of the cross. And the only way we understand the message of the cross is by the Holy Spirit who reveals that truth to us. So the two big ideas I want to talk about are gospel wisdom. And that's what we're going to see. The wisdom he talks about connected to the gospel. Gospel wisdom is hidden from the world. And the second big idea is that gospel wisdom is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Gospel wisdom is hidden from the world, but gospel wisdom is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So let's go back a little bit to the passage we looked at the last time. In verse 4, he says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul has talked a lot about wisdom, and his concern is that their faith not rest in man's wisdom, but that their faith rest in the power of God. And that's why he has repeatedly taught to them the good news of the gospel. Now, Paul is not against wisdom. He's just against a kind of worldly wisdom that the Corinthians have embraced. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, we do, I'm sorry, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory, uh, for your glory. So he is making a contrast here between the wisdom he imparts and the wisdom they are enamored with. It's the culture's wisdom. They were enamored with sort of a philosophical kind of of wisdom in their day. And he's saying, that's not the kind of wisdom that we imparted, but we impart a different kind of wisdom for the mature. 
So who are the mature? Because that sounds very much like the Corinthians. They kind of grade people. And as Paul's saying, hey, there's this special elite category of people called the mature. No, that would be very much in line with the Corinthian thought. He says, no, the mature, we impart a wisdom to the mature, uh, which is God's wisdom. So who are the mature? The mature are those who receive Paul's wisdom that he teaches from God. And what is that wisdom? Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 1, he has is, he is contrasted worldly wisdom with God's wisdom. And he says, the wisdom I brought is God's wisdom. Jesus crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So those who receive that message are the mature, the person who receives the message about Jesus. It is a maturity that's tied to the message of the cross and living in light of the cross. This is maturity. Spiritual maturity is not moving on from the gospel into greater truths, into more mysterious realities. It is not reaching a certain level of divine practice that leaves the gospel behind. No, he is saying that that is the very message for the mature, that the mature person is the one who will hear Christ and him crucified and will say, that is the message that feeds my soul. It is the immature person that is saying, that's not enough. I need some secret knowledge or some some, uh, advanced spiritual teaching. It's just the opposite of what they would expect. And he says, this isn't the wisdom of the rulers of the age. The rulers of the age, he says, are doomed to pass away. But we preach a wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory. So he's saying, the wisdom of this world is temporary. It doesn't last. The rulers of this age, the wise of this age, whatever they're teaching is passing away. But God's wisdom is eternal. I mean, think about this. If you turn on, if you watch cable news, for instance, right now, there is daily some candidate giving some wisdom, purported wisdom about what will fix our situation. What is the answer to our needs and our crises in this nation and beyond our nation to the world? What are the answers and and something's paraded up there and give 24 hours and it's something new it doesn't even last the length of the candidate's life life it doesn't even last to the to the to the lifetime of the of the wise person there's something new in 24 hours Think about that. There, it, we live in a world of sound bites where there is there there are wisdoms, there are wisdom and ideas and philosophies of life and plan. There are self help programs that are here today and gone tomorrow. They're like fad diets. It's like it's like the cabbage diet for for a philosophy of life. It's, it's it was a diet that was around here for a while. It's gone. It didn't last because it was gross. And so there are mindsets very similar to that. They're, they're here and then they are gone. But God's wisdom is ageless. As a matter of fact, he says it was decreed before the ages for our glory. So God had a plan t- for our glory that was uh, constructed and architected before creation. What is that plan that he's contrasting to the the rulers, the philosophers, the wise people of this age? Well, God created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. And he created a perfect garden and he placed the original man and woman in that garden. And he created a a perfect environment for them to live. They had uh, glorious fellowship with one another, no sin, no hurt, no pain, no offense. And they had a perfect relationship with God, the Father, fellowship with him in the garden all the time. It was a paradise. But the first man and woman rebelled against God. They wanted to be God themselves. They wanted to, they wanted to tap into the secret knowledge and to be God, to, to not be answerable to an authority, but to be their own authority, to be like God is what they wanted. And when they did, sin came into the world. They fell. And with it, not only did they fall, but they brought the fall to everyone who would come after them. It's called the original sin is that we are all born with a fallen sinful nature as well. And so this wonderful creation that God had created was was distorted, was marred, uh, death 
entered in because sin entered in. But even in the garden, God made a promise that he would send one who would reverse this curse that they experienced, that he would turn back the powers of darkness and that he would one day restore the, the original intent of the creation. He said that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent was the wily, crafty Satan that tempted Eve to sin. And so we see in the Old Testament the life of Israel as they anticipate this coming one, as God gives various types and images and foreshadowing prophecies of this Jesus who would come, though they didn't know who he would be. And then the Bible tells us that, he, that, that God comes and becomes a man, Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom of the before the ages. This is the wisdom of God that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he did things that demonstrated God is reversing the power of darkness. God is repelling the enemy's power. God is winning back through Christ what was lost at the fall. So for instance, he healed sick people, demonstrating his power over disease and illness. He even raised a couple of people from the dead, showing that he had power over death, that he was coming to announce the king's rule and power over death. He, he expelled demons from people, powers of darkness that lived in people and controlled their lives and animated them with wickedness. And he cast them out with just a word to show what no man could do, Jesus could do with the word of his power. The same God who spoke everything into existence so commanded the darkness and it left. The glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life. He did what Adam and Eve failed to do. He obeyed God perfectly. And then he was crucified. He died for our sins. He died as our substitute. He took our sins upon himself. This is what Paul says. Remember this. This is what I told you. This is what I knew when I was among you, Christ and him crucified. He took our sins. He was buried. And then on the third day, he was raised to life, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death, defeating the power of the enemy. Then he, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit came and reveals everything I just told to you from the scripture, reveals that to us so that when people hear this message of God's wisdom through Christ to, to rescue the dying world, that when they hear that, that the lights would go off, that the Spirit would shine upon Jesus, that the truth of Jesus would make sense and be compelling and we would believe when we hear and turn to him that the spirit would come in us and grant us new life and actually dwell in us and we would become the church the people of God who gather under Christ and whom crucified who are in Christ and Christ is in us the where the presence of God dwells that we would be the people that are a part of God's plan that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it that the church is telling the good news to a lost world to a blinded world to a dead world telling good news and God is granting new life and calling us together God calls the church to extend mercy to those who are hurting, to extend healing and, and comfort to those who suffer, to provide and to care and to demonstrate his life, the compassion of Jesus. And then one day he says he will return. That is for his glory, but the text here says for our glory as well. We will be resurrected. We will receive new bodies and we will glorify him. That's called glorification. We will glorify him with new spiritual bodies for eternity. And he says, this is the wisdom of the ages. And he says, the, the, the rulers of this age did not get it. And here's his proof. Here... Here is his proof, the wisdom of God versus the bankruptcy of the wisdom of this world. Verse 8, none of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you see what he says? Take the wisest humans living. Arguably, Rome was the greatest government in the history of the world up until that point, the Roman Empire. And uh, so you have the greatest government, arguably, in the history of the world. You certainly have the greatest religion in Judaism being practiced at the temple in Jerusalem. And you have the greatest 
the greatest rulers of the age in the civil government and the greatest rulers of the age uh, in the religious environment, the priests of Yahweh, the people of Israel. And what do the greatest rulers in government and the greatest rulers in religion do? He says, they conspire and kill God. That's how wise they are. That's the wisdom of the Lord. And I'm not just blaming Romans and Jews. It's on us. It's our sin that caused Jesus to be crucified. But that's his case in point. Do you want to know, Corinthians, how wise the world is? Look what they did to Jesus. God himself came to them. And they murder God. How foolish can the world be? And yet you are chasing the things of the world. You're looking for some wisdom when right in front of you, is Jesus and him crucified. It's like saying to them, why would you be chasing all of these other things when you have Christ? Why are you looking for the wisdom of the rulers of this world that's passing away? It's like they have a bad case of spiritual man-eyes. Do you know what man-eyes are? Man-eyes are the plague that affects all men, especially married men, to not be able to find things. It's man It's when you cannot see what's right in front of you. It's, it's you running around the house saying, where are my keys? Where are my keys? And your wife's saying, they're right in front of you. It's you running around, where's my phone? Did you see where I put my, that, those are man-eyes. In, any female can see it, but a man is blinded. To it. And if you're a single lady, this is a way that you could prepare for marriage. Start acknowledging things that are in plain view of everyone. You'll be, you'll be in, in practice to be a great wife because whoever you marry, uh, he will not be able to discern what's right in front of him. It's man eyes. I remember one time when our kids were younger, I just have this memory. I don't know, we were going somewhere or whatever. And uh, I was just looking, I was sort of frantically looking around and I probably hadn't asked anyone yet because a characteristic of man eyes is not to not to ask till you're at least 10, 15 minutes late because you think you can be able to find them. So man eyes is, is wed with, uh, with pride that does not want to ask. But I can remember looking around, where are my sunglasses? We got to go, and where are they? And I'm looking all around. And finally, I asked, and one of my kids pointed out that they were on my head. I had, I had my regular glasses on and I had my sunglass, prescription sunglasses on my head. And I'm looking, where are they? This is exactly what's going on with the Corinthians. What you are looking for, the wisdom you are pursuing is as close as the glasses on your head, Corinthians. You just don't see the obvious. And we can all relate because we're all tempted to look for a silver bullet. What is the answer to my problem? Yeah, I know about Jesus. Yeah, I got the salvation message. I prayed the prayer. Jesus forgave my sin. I even joined a church, got baptized. Yes, I got it. I'm a Christian. I've come, in the, I've come in the door of Jesus. Uh, he is the door. He is the way. I believe. Okay, I've got that. But I've got problems in life that aren't addressed, that I need help. I, what is the wisdom? What is the solution to the problems I have? I need some information. I need some kind of truth that'll help me. I'm looking for happiness. So where do I find that as a Christian? Where do I find peace in the midst of a busy life? Life is busy. It is, we sang that this morning, in the chaos. So in the chaos of life, yes, I know about the gospel. You don't have to tell me about the gospel again. I'm already a Christian. I want to know where's peace in the chaos. I mean, it's great to hear that Jesus died for sins. What I need to know about is when I am in the office Wednesday afternoon with zero motivation for my job, where do I get motivation for work? And maybe your job is, you know, not your dream job. Maybe it is your dream job. Motivation doesn't come with just having a dream job because even those in the dream job find themselves lacking motivation. Maybe it's, maybe it's your marriage if you're married and you say, I'm looking for just joy in my marriage. I'm looking for something that's meaningful. How can I have a fulfilling marriage? How can I have a meaningful marriage? How can, we're, how can we restore the flame, the romance flame, the communication flame, the unity flame, whatever it is? 
in your marriage. Or maybe it's joyful family life. Man, okay, I understand Jesus. Uh, I understand Jesus. I understand forgiveness of my sins. Of my sins. That's great. I got a two-year-old. So let's talk about the, the craziness of my life. I've got an 18-year-old. I've got a whatever it is that you are facing. We want, we, we have desires and wants. We want to feel needed. We want to feel loved. We want to feel appreciated. We want to feel safe and we want to feel secure. We want the guilt to go away. We want the shame to go away. And, and the temptation is to think that there is some uh, advanced knowledge that will be separate from Christ, that will be separate from him crucified and resurrected, that will somehow be the silver bullet that will change my life. There's got to be some construct philosophically wherein everything will make sense if I just get that. And Paul calls the church in Corinth back and us back as well to a, a wisdom that is based on Christ and him crucified. Because all of our, and I don't want to be simplistic here in the sense of if I just meditate on Christ, I have no problems. You know, like all my medical problems go away. I'm not saying that. Uh, and and all, all the circumstances of life change. I'm certainly not saying that. But, but we, can, we can quickly say, oh, that's simplistic and quickly move to complexity and end up where they did. And say it's very complex. There's a whole lot more to it than that. The, the death and resurrection of Christ at a, at a base level answers the deepest needs of humanity. It answers the deepest needs of our soul, the deepest needs of our heart. I love Tim Keller's comment about Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel. He says that in the gospel, we find this out in Jesus' death and resurrection. We find this out, that we are more sinful than we imagined, but we are more loved than we dared dream, than we ever dared dream. That the gospel communicates to us, yes, it's an answer for sin. Yes, it's the answer for our sin. It communicates something about the offensiveness and, and the, the seriousness of our sin, to be sure. But it also communicates something else, that you are more deeply loved by God the Father than you could ever imagine. And there is no source of emotional, relational security that will replace that. That there's not a relationship that you can grasp onto that will give you security such that you don't need Jesus anymore. And there's no lack of relationship, there's no lack of security that in Christ, uh, we, we, there's, that we can't experience a genuine security, a genuine sense of love, loved by the Father who has adopted us into his family through Christ. He's given us a freedom to live life the way we are intended to live it. There is an acceptance and an approval that he gives us in Christ that is at the core of our being. We all want to be approved of. We all long for acceptance. And if we simply chase that, if we chase acceptance through people, if we chase approval through being impressive, through what we know, through how we look, losing a little weight, looking younger, uh, getting a new car, getting some kind of new clothing or new possession, new house, new, new job, some kind of status that will win the approval of others. It will never satisfy the desire of our heart that says God says he loves us and approves of us in Christ where we are today. And there's a deeply satisfying reality and truth in Christ and him crucified. So the wisdom of our ages gives all kinds of other solutions. The wisdom of the ages gives all kinds of other help. Now, what I'm not saying, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that there's not wisdom by common grace in the culture, that, that, there's not, that there aren't helpful truths or practices, or there's not helpful insight that could even be gained by people that don't know Christ. I'm not saying that the social sciences offer no insight or wisdom. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying by God's common grace, people that don't even know him speak things that are true, that reflect the truth of his word and actually reflect the truth of the way God created things to be. So there are people by God's grace that communicate 
appreciate things that can be very helpful to us um, through the social sciences and other means about reality. But whatever is true and helpful is always reflective because it's true and helpful of what God himself is like. So they want to move on to other wisdom, and Paul wants them to be tethered to Christ and him crucified. I love what David Pryor says about this. He's a commentator, who, and in 2 Corinthians 2, he wrote this. It is most important to note that the mystery of which Christ speaks here is not something additional to the saving message of Christ crucified. So he's not talking about a wisdom that's way down the line. It is in Christ crucified that the wisdom of God is embodied. We never, therefore, move on from the cross of Christ only into a more profound understanding of the cross. So it's not just the entry point. Jesus isn't just the A, and then we move on to B, C, D, and E. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. Paul says, when I was with you, I knew Christ and him crucified. And all the other things I taught you about life, about mission, about relationships, about your purpose, everything else I taught you in some way flowed from Christ. Christ and him crucified. In some way, it was connected to the good news of what Jesus has done for you. That the Christian life, as he portrayed it, is accented by what God has done, not by what you have done, what I have done, or what we have failed to do. We never move on. It's not like, okay, we got that out of the way. Now let's get to the good stuff. It doesn't get better than Jesus and him crucified. As a matter of fact, the vision of heaven is a lamb on the throne with everyone encircling him. And that picture of revelation, it's, it's, a, it's an, this apocalyptic image, this symbolic picture of a lamb on a throne crucified. It's Jesus and, and, and everyone gathered around in worship. He is the center and his act is the central act. And the world does not get this. Secondly, the gospel wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. It's hidden from the world, but it's revealed by the Spirit. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For, God, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. What is that all about? What he's saying is the Spirit in a person knows a person. So as you look around the room, you can't see anybody's spirit, but you can see their exterior. Inside every person is the real person, their spirit, and that person knows what they are like. So you can't look at somebody's body in the room and know what they're thinking. I mean, you may think you can by body language, but you really don't know the depths of their heart. You don't know what their wants, you don't know their desires, you don't know what they're feeling today. But the spirit inside them knows. They could have a crushed spirit, they could have a spirit full of joy today, that they could be deeply worried. But that spirit, the internal person, it is, knows the person. So your spirit knows you. And I can't know you from the outside by just looking at you. And so Paul says the same is true with God. The Holy Spirit knows God. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. And the Holy Spirit shares the truth of God, communicates the truth. That's why he says in verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world. It's not the world's wisdom that's, that's affecting us. But we've received the spirit who is from God we, so that we may understand the things freely given us by God. So the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to understand the things of God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So he's saying the spiritual person is the person who is trusting Jesus and his work in the cross. And when we teach you, it's the Holy Spirit that makes that clear. It's the Holy Spirit that communicates those truths to you. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 14 is so key. The natural person... What's natural as opposed to the spiritual person? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit because they are foolish, and he or she is not even able to understand them because you need the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned. Do you see what he's saying to the Corinthians? He's saying, you have all these ideas about wisdom. You're pursuing all these kinds of wisdom. But here's what I want you to understand. You can't even 
understand the truth of God unless the Holy Spirit opens up your mind, unless he gives you discernment. What he's saying to them is you are dependent. They want to be independent. They want to reach higher spirituality. They want to be more spiritual than the other church member. And he's saying you can't know anything unless the Holy Spirit, in essence, reveals it to you. We are dependent. The Corinthians, he's saying, you boast, you proclaim you have this wisdom. You're so spiritual and so mature, but you wouldn't understand the basic truth of Jesus dying for sinners if the Spirit hadn't enabled you. You are unable to understand this truth on your own. So we're deeply dependent. Now, He's not saying, when he says understand, he's not saying that someone who is an unbeliever can't explain the truths that God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus died as a substitute and rose, and if you believe in him by grace, through faith, you can receive new life. He's not saying that someone couldn't understand that. When he says understanding, he means believingly understand that you can't hear that truth. And if if you hear that truth as an unbeliever, you say, that's folly, that's foolishness. It doesn't mean anything to me. And maybe that's your condition here today. You're hearing this, you're going, well, this is not even relevant at all to my life. But he's saying that that if if the Spirit of God is communicating to you, then it will be different. You will discern truth. You will say, Jesus is glorious. This is God's plan for the ages. This is God's plan for my life. I trust and believe in Christ. You'll respond to him believingly when the Spirit grants you spiritual sight. Have you ever stopped to really consider that? Have you ever stopped to say, why do I believe in Jesus? Why is it? And the Bible's answer is it's not, well, it's not because the country you grew up in. It's not because of your, it's not because you were wise or you were moral or you were good. It's, It's because the spirit opened your eyes. It is the work of God. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor, a British Baptist pastor from the 1800s, the second half of the 1800s, he talks about one day he was in church, basically daydreaming. And uh, he says, while he's daydreaming in church, he's not thinking about the message, he's, he's getting, he's having some thoughts that are revealing to him that really God is at the bottom of his salvation, at the bottom of it all. And that's what Paul's saying. You can't discern these things on your own, the truth of the gospel. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths in my own soul. One weeknight when I was sitting at the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, and the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make my whole confession. I I ascribe my change completely to God. What he's saying is, yes, I read the scripture, which the Lord led me to do to begin with. Yes, I prayed, but I never would have understood the truth. It would have been folly. I was natural. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the Spirit explained it, gave me insight, gave me wisdom. This was no longer a hidden mystery. It was revealed to me by the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. Have you come to realize God is at the bottom of it all? It wasn't that I just made a better choice than someone else. It's that that not only did Jesus die for my sins, but the Spirit helped me to understand that. So what does this produce in our lives? So what, what, is the street, what is the street value of this teaching? Because the language of it is spiritual and mature, and the, the Spirit knows the mind of God, and um, 
you know, the natural man, the gospel's foolish. I mean, what is the real value of this for our lives? Well, here's, here's a primary one. It is that this should cultivate gratitude in our lives. If Christians are anything, we are to be people that are soaked in gratitude, consumed with thanksgiving, people who are deeply appreciative of what Jesus has done for us, what we never could have done for ourselves. And not only did he do that for us in the cross, he made it clear to us by the Spirit of God. This is how commentator D.A. Carson says this, he said about this verse. He says, if we see the truth of the gospel, therefore, it has nothing to do with our brilliance or our insight. It has to do with the Spirit of God. If we should express unqualified gratitude to God for the gift of his son, we should, no less, we should express no less gratitude to God for the gift of the spirit who enables us to grasp the gospel of his son. We should be people grateful for what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus, for I could never make myself right with God. I could never atone for my sins. I could never give myself new life. Thank you for paying the price and granting me new life. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening my eyes because if you hadn't given me discernment, that would have been foolish to me. Do you ever think about that? You, you go, and maybe you heard the gospel and somebody else was there with you. You heard it for the first time, or maybe you heard it a hundred times, but for the first time you believed it and your buddy didn't believe it and you did believe it. What distinguishes the two of you? Well, I'm smarter than he is. No. I'm more moral than he is. No, I'm a gooder person than he is. No. It's, it was folly to him, but the Spirit gave you discernment. I don't know how all of that works. All I know is that the Holy Spirit gets the credit, and we are dependent people, grateful people. See, the Corinthians are all about self-assertion. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, pursuing wisdom, pursuing spirituality, pers putting themselves first, not even waiting for the poor to receive the Lord's Supper, going first. It's about me and my spiritual life and my maturity and how I compare to others. But the grateful person says, I can't believe I even know Jesus. I can't believe God has done that for me. I can't believe that he opened my eyes to this. And where there is a church that is consumed with gratitude, rather than filled with complaining, bicker, bickering, uh, uh, discontent, discontent, complaining, uh, ungratefulness, the sours relationships in a church. But people are truly grateful for Jesus and truly amazed that the Spirit opened our eyes and gave us discernment to know anything. It's not how much more do I know than you. It's I can't believe I know anything about Jesus. I can't believe that he changed my heart. I can't believe that I love him. Where, where that attitude is prevalent, there will be a unity, and that's what he's going after. Now, he doesn't use the word gratitude here, I understand. But I believe it's an implication. Another implication, which is not an, an implication, I mean, it's very clear, is, is humility. It cultivates a humility. Closely related to gratitude is humility. The wisdom Paul speaks of that I am made right with God because of what Jesus did for me means I have nothing to offer God but the sin in my life. I didn't save myself. I didn't do anything that would, that would cause him to bless me. I didn't earn the blessing of salvation. It was given me, and so I should be humble. In chapter 4, he's going to say, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it's yours? I have nothing to boast in. He's been talking about that. Verse 31 of chapter 1, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul is about do not boast in yourself, do not boast in your knowledge, do not boast in your gifts, do not boast in your church, boast in Jesus. Humble yourself and elevate Jesus. Humi this, this brings humility and, and it brings it, verse 14 brings it to a whole nother level. He brings it to a greater level of humility because here he says, not only did you not save yourself, 
He says that when you heard about God saving you, if it wasn't for the Spirit, you weren't even able to discern that. You thought that was foolish. Not only did you save yourself, but when hearing the greatest news in the world, you didn't even perceive it as good news apart from the Holy Spirit. Look at the rulers of the age. They killed the Lord of glory. They killed the Lord of glory, and you would be walking that same path. This affects how I view God. It affects my view of grace. And for Paul's purposes of the church living together, it affects our views of others. It affects our view of unbelievers. Think about that. When I understand the the wisdom of God is what he's done for me and that I'm dependent on the Spirit to even make that clear to me, there is no place for self-righteousness. How in the world can I look down on others? How in the world can I judge myself better than someone of another religion, as if I've accomplished something, as if I've done, I'm a recipient. So how can I look at others? And, 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 the, and maybe it's the gospel's folly to them. They need the spirit to make it discernible, to make it understandable, to make it glorious to their eyes. They're blinded, Paul says elsewhere in scripture. There's a veil over the unbeliever's eyes that, that, that we need the Lord to remove. So when I look at people who have a different political view, when I look at people who have a different sexual ethics than than the scripture teaches and that that we try to uphold from the scripture, when I look at somebody else and say they're greedy, they're hateful, they're arrogant, when I look at them and want to be tempted to despise them for their sin, to think that I'm better than them, then this truth humbles me to say, I'm simply one who Jesus, who's received Jesus. I'm simply one who's had my eyes open. I'm simply one who understands because God has reached me. That's a, that's a humility in how we relate with other people. The church should be made up of the, the most humble people on the world because if, in the world because our Faith teaches us we have nothing to boast about. Our religion announces you have nothing to take credit for. And throughout says boast in Jesus. We have nothing to take credit for. And so of all people, the idea of self-righteous Christians that look down on people who aren't Christians is absurd. And that's why Paul, it's reality, for me and for you because of sin, but it's an absurd proposition and that's why Paul wants to draw them back to real wisdom. You're chasing wisdom that's gonna make you think you're better than. I wanna draw you back to the true wisdom that will bring humility. Here's how he says it, verse uh, 16. We have the mind of Christ. Now, that is, Paul in this passage is being very gracious. He's correcting them, he's rebuking them, but he's not doing it in direct. He's going to do it a little more directly later in the letter. But it's very, it's just very loving, caring. Well, it'll be loving later too, but it's, it's less direct. What he's saying is, have the mind of Christ. Well, what is the mind of Christ? He tells us in Philippians 2, this is the mind of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ says, consider others better than ourselves, humble ourselves, uh, lay down our lives. That is a spiritual person. A spiritual person believes Christ and him crucified as the central uh, uh, truth in our lives. And our lives are shaped by that with the mind of Christ, which is a call to servanthood and a call to humility and a call to loving other people. That's, the, that's what a real spiritual person is. Gratitude, humility, and I would say lastly, just a call to prayer. I think when I read this, it, it, just, it just makes me think, if the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, then the natural people all around us, family members, coworkers, neighbors, friends, the, the, these people all around us need the Lord to make sense of the truth of the gospel to them. 
And so we must pray. We must be people who pray for those around us who need the Lord. Pray for discernment. Now, they're culpable. We're all culpable. We're all guilty. It doesn't say, well, you can't really understand it, so you're not guilty. No, we're all guilty. We're going our own way. Uh, we're pursuing our own thing. But, but we need the Lord to touch hearts and lives all around us, to give them sight. This kind of, this kind of uh, mindset should breed compassion in our hearts, a compassion. You know what, we, what I do and what the church does, what we're like famous for in our culture, what we're famous for is expecting uh, unbelievers to act like believers. What we're famous for is being exasperated and condescending and judgmental to unbelievers that act like unbelievers. It doesn't make sense to them. What do we expect? What do we expect? It, it's a, it, we forget where we were before Christ saved us. Where were we? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Where would, be, be, where would we be today if he hadn't rescued us? At the same place. How quickly we forget. And self-righteousness takes over. That's Paul's point. And the way we relate to others who are Christians as well. Now, this is talking about believer, unbeliever, rulers of this age, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of God. So this passage is making, it's dividing those who know Christ and those who don't. But I think that there's an application for believers as well that calls us to be patient with one another. Because though we have the spirit of God and though we know the gospel, we don't always get everything. I don't get everything. You don't get everything. There's things I don't see in my life. There's sins and there's weakness and problems that I don't even see. I'm unaware of. And it, this causes us to be patient. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal uh, his truth to others. We can speak God's word to one another. We can encourage one another from God's word. But, but we're not called to be the Holy Spirit. We're not called to fix everybody. We're, we're called to share truth, sometimes share truth in a persistent manner, we're, we're called to lovingly come alongside and share truth in the scripture and pray that the Lord will do his work, knowing that he is faithful to his people. That's a good word if you have a spouse or a child or a family member or friend that, that, that you want to see know the Lord that doesn't. Or maybe they know the Lord and you want to see them walk with him and they don't. We trust him. This passage drives home the same point. Christ and him crucified is central to the church. Church, don't chase wisdom that the world has for it is coming to an end. Church, realize that the wisdom you have is Christ and him crucified and it was revealed to you by the spirit. And just think through, what does that mean? To know Jesus and to have my sins forgiven, to, to, to be deeply loved in spite of myself, to be given a purpose and a calling for all eternity, to have a future that is de defined and certain with him forever, to have a, a great high priest who sympathizes with my weaknesses and even in my suffering is with me, comforting me, strengthening me, that he suffered himself. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be alone. And even on the cross says, my God, my God, why, did you, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it is to be forsaken. Jesus knows what it is to be despised, rejected, opposed he suffered for us he empathizes with us he loves us and we access that truth through the central message of the bible that christ is a savior who died for us for his love let that truth buoy you to lift you up to hold you up the temptation is to forget that and go a thousand other places may god draw us back to himself let's pray You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.